Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, your host, and the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the pod we get wonky with one of the most sought-after messaging gurus in the the progressive political world, retired UC Berkeley professor George Lakoff. He's a linguist, a master of metaphors. So for years, all kinds of politicians and political advocacy groups have sought him out for how to hone their messages. So today, from his office on the Berkeley campus, Professor Lakoff breaks down how President Trump should use language to craft his immigration message. And he talks about how we should react to Trump on Twitter. Should we ignore him or not? And he tries to school me on my ongoing mockery of the Democrats' love affair with the Congressman Joe Kennedy III. That and more on It's All Political. So welcome to It's All Political. We are here in the UC Berkeley offices of Professor George Lakoff, uh, Professor Emeritus of Linguistics these days, correct? That's right. <laughs> I, I uh, retired after 50 years of university teaching. And now you are, you serve, you're, you've uh, opened up your own business, correct? Yeah, uh, Gil Duran and I have started uh, uh, a, a consulting firm uh, on framing called FrameLab Communications, and we uh, do a framing of uh, issues from a progressive perspective, but also understanding the uh, conservative perspective um, for clients of all sorts, whether political or social or uh, individual, whoever, uh, whoever is, you know, interested in doing something for the world yeah before we start talking about all that we uh and what what framing is and what exactly you do uh we have to want to tell a story about uh two back in 2005 when you and i watched george w bush's second inaugural address in your home in berkeley and you broke down bush's use of the word freedom because he used the word freedom 26 times in a 21 minute speech and you said this is not about the freedom that we traditionally know it as, as or as progressives think of it, but as economic freedom and um, uh, and sort of unfettered capitalism. And then uh, for those uh, keeping track at uh, keeping track at home, Bush used it uh, six more times than Martin Luther King did in his uh, famous uh, seminal "I Have a Dream" speech. And the next day, I don't know if you remember this, but Rush Limbaugh went on the air and ripped us both. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember it. But I, I then was asked by my publisher to write a book on that, which I did called Who's Freedom? And it's about a 500-page discussion of uh, how conservatives and progressives differently use the word freedom and how they come from their different worldviews, how you can predict how they're going to use it. Well, let's talk a little bit about what it is you do and what is explain what framing is mm-hmm. and uh and 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 how what framing is how framing is quote unquote different than what propaganda is when it comes to politics. sure uh first of all you're always framing uh a frame is a mental structure uh that characterizes some limited uh range of experiences or some limited uh institution uh for example a restaurant uh, you know that uh, 
there are waiters and there are dishes and there are chefs and there are menus and there's a check at the end and so on and that uh, the waiters ask you to for a dish and you know what happens in a restaurant and you also know what shouldn't happen in a restaurant I mean, you don't expect to walk into a restaurant and find someone lying on your table and the guy gives you a scalpel and says you're operating on him. No, that's not uh, in the restaurant frame. Uh, you don't expect to find, um, you know, a rhinoceros in the restaurant, you know, and so on. Uh, you know, you, there are, you know what's in the frame. And, uh, in fact, you know it so well that uh, you couldn't get an NSF grant to, uh, to prove that it was everybody knows this. Uh, and you can't think without it about your everyday activities because everyday activities are all framed and they're framed mentally but also all your words are defined relative to frames this is what charles fillmore my late colleague discovered uh back in 1975 and um you know you can't have you can't say a word you can't talk at all without using frames so they're there their mental structures, they're mostly unconscious. 98% of thought is unconscious. Uh, it has to be unconscious for a reason. Uh, ideas don't float in the air. They're carried out by the neural circuitry in your brain and throughout your body. And, that, uh, and you don't have conscious access to your neural circuitry. And that's why it's mostly unconscious. Consciousness is a very special uh, state. We're also... Uh, a lot of what we hear in the political realm is judged by our um, diff different worldviews. Conservatives have a different worldview than progressives. Explain the difference between the two. Well, uh, the easiest way to explain it uh, is something that I discovered when I was. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you how I got onto this. I, I was. Um, I read in the 1994 election, Republicans took over Congress. And they used the Contract with America, a small booklet that says, if you elect us, we're going to do the following 10 things. We're going to outlaw abortion, and we're going to impose a flat tax. And you say, wait a minute, what does the flat tax have to do with abortion? And we're going to make sure everyone can own a gun. And you say, well, wait a minute, what does that have to do with the first thing? And we're going to get rid of environmental regulations. And you say, well, what do these things have to do with each other? And there are 10 of them. And I said, these are really strange people. I mean, what's going on here? Uh, and I said, well, I have the opposite views on all of these. What's going on in my views? And I couldn't answer the question. But I knew that this was a question in my field, cognitive science. So I did lots of interviews, read all the books I could, read all the papers I could. Uh, and uh, I figured it out because one of my undergraduate students had written a term paper explaining that we have a metaphor uh, of which the, na the nation is a family. That is, we have founding fathers. Nobody says, what do you mean fathers? Not my father. No. Founding fathers. We send our sons and daughters to war. We have homeland security. Uh, you know, we don't want missiles in our backyard and so on. And this is something we just naturally do. It's a general metaphor. So it occurred to me that if we understand the nation as a family and we have two different understandings of the nation, we might have two different understandings of families. And so I worked backwards from that and out popped two different families. For uh, progressives, what I call a caring or nurturing family, and for uh, conservatives, a strict father family. And uh, once you work out the details of those two families and ask how do they project onto politics, you can see what the differences are. And that's a major thing. Uh, in a progressive family that is a uh, what I'll call the nurturing parent family. 
if there are two parents, they have equal responsibility. Their job is to empathize with their child, to know what all the, the infant's screams mean, and to be able to talk openly with their older children, um, to be able to um, take responsibility because they are helping and protecting their children, and they have to explain it. If the children ask, why can't I, why do I have to not run into the street? You say you can get run over, and here's what would happen to you. Why can't I touch the stove? Well, you could get burned, and here's here's what you don't do, you know? And your job is to, to protect your child uh, by being open and saying exa- and answering all the questions. Uh, that's part of your responsibility. And you also are supposed to uh, want your child to be fulfilled in life. That is, uh, you want them to be healthy, to get a good education, uh, to uh, engage in appropriate sports, to build their bodies, uh, to have all sorts of experiences, uh, music lessons or whatever, all kinds of, of experiences. And, um, you know, as, as Hillary Clinton said, it takes a village. It's not that you can do it yourself. You might not be able to give music lessons, but you have to get someone else who can. And this is important. Uh, your, your job is to try to make sure that your children are fulfilled in life uh, and that you, take, you care for them, but you want them to care for other people. Part of it is to say your job is to be empathetic toward others, to care about other people. To, uh, and, to, and you teach them about citizenship. I was at the age of uh, uh, seven, I was brought into the voting booth by my mother and watched her vote mm-hmm. right there. And I was, exp- I, you know, and she said, you always vote. This is what you do, you know, period. And I've never missed an election. So let's take that to, let's take that to the president's State of the Union the other night. He said, quote, all of us, I want you to break this down, all of us together as one team, one people, and one American family. How, what is he doing by talking about family in that way? He's taking a strict father family, and that's what he, you know, that's how he was raised, and that's what conservatives believe in. We will go into that in a minute, but he believes that in a strict father family, and he believes that the strict father family is the way of the world, that it's natural and moral, that that is what's right. And Republicans generally believe this. So when Republicans, uh, when uh, surveyed, were asked, uh, do people, can you uh, show that the president to, to your children that is a moral leader? You know, was, I think it was 82% said 82%, yes. 82%, yeah. Said yes. Yeah. 80% Why? said that Trump himself was a good moral leader. How, how can they do that when this man has been accused of assault by 19 uh, different women? He talks, he brags about sexually assaulting women. How, what, explain, the, the, that seems like a disconnect there. Well, um, let's go over what the moral system is. Uh, first, what is a uh, uh, first in the in the progressive family that maps onto a view that uh, the government is you have a government of by and for the people. You know, in a family, it's of the family members by the family members for the family members. Mm-hmm. This is of the people by the people for the people. Maps directly to that. And it's in the family, you have to uh, get uh, resources for the whole family. That's what your job is, to do that. And the government, the public, that is, the citizens, uh, care about other citizens and get public resources through the government that are for everybody in the public, for everybody. And you can't run a business or have a private life 
without roads and bridges and mm-hmm. airports and uh, science and science and technology developed through the government uh, and um, you know modern medicine developed you know through the NIH and all of that you couldn't have any of that stuff you couldn't have any kind of business without public resources that every Democrat Democrat knows this and it comes directly out of understanding what uh, a caring family is about mm. in a strict father family it's very very different uh, in a strict father family the fa- father is law his word is what's right he knows right from wrong and what he says is always right period and his job is to raise his children to be moral beings in that sense to know his theory of morality which is to say you're supposed to do what I say <clears throat> and not do what feels good you've heard of the term feel-good liberalism mm-hmm. there are books written on this by conservatives that say uh, liberals are just brought up to, to do what feels good they don't have strict enough fathers that's why they're crazy you know? and um, you know you have uh, you know you're supposed to do what he says and if you don't then you his job is to punish the child painfully enough that to avoid the punishment the child will do what his father says instead of what feels good in order to do that they have to develop the discipline not to do what they just want to do but, but how do but how do conservatives reconcile Trump the man with Trump the this but, moral leader but, but let me finish because this is we're getting to the the crucial part of this because there's a logic to all of this. It says, uh, if uh, you get this discipline to, to not do what feels good, but to do what your, your father says, then you can go out into the world and become prosperous. What if you're not prosperous? That means you don't have the discipline, you can't become moral in this sense, and you deserve your poverty. Hence, people who are poor deserve their poverty. Wow. And people who are wealthy deserve it because they're the disciplined people. Now, not only that, it goes further than that. And it goes further than that in an important way. Um, if the view is not only that this is moral, but that it is the way the world is, that the world functions this way, and that the people who win over periods of time, over long periods of time, are the people who deserve to win over periods of time, and so you get a moral hierarchy coming out of this, and here's the hierarchy. Uh, God over man, religion has won out. Man over nature, we're conquering nature. Uh, it's there for us, anything we, we care to do about it, do with it. It's there for us, drill baby drill. Uh, you get uh, the rich over the poor, they've earned it, the poor don't deserve it. Uh, the the <clears throat> powerful over the weak. The powerful deserve it, they're disciplined, etc. The weak haven't done what they need to become disciplined. Right? And um, you know, there was a, a senator recently who was uh, on the discussion of the tax bill, uh, talked about taxing people who were poor. And he said, well, they're just going to spend the money anyway on um, drug, booze and women and so on and, and movies. Uh, you know, why not give it to the country? Yeah, that is exactly, the, exactly that sentiment. And then it goes further. It says adults over children in 21 states, uh, coaches and teachers can beat children with sticks if they don't uh, just do what they're told. If they uh, answer back, if they sass them, if they refuse to do what they're told, they can be beaten, 21 states. Uh, and then you have things like Western culture over non-Western culture. You see that in Trump all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the Western countries have won out. 
America over other countries. We're the most powerful country. We deserve it, right? That falls in the shithole countries. Falls versus the, that. Uh, yeah. Exactly, yeah. the shithole countries. We're America, the strongest, the best, etc. Right. We're the winners. They're the losers. Then you have things like um, uh, men over women, whites over non-whites, um, Christians over non-Christians, straights over gays. Hmm. Right. You take that hierarchy. And what you can get out of that hierarchy is something very important, which is all conservative Republican proposals fit that hierarchy. And you can just go through the hierarchy and just get a list, and you can see what those proposals are. So, for example, God over man. Churches get major tax breaks. They seek fun public funding for religious schools. Uh, religious Christmas scenes in public places funded by public money. Large crosses have been erected on public land. Evangelical judges have fought to have the Ten Commandments in their classrooms. Uh, uh, evangelicals claim that life begins at conception. Fetuses are babies, that abortion is murder. Uh, they fight against Planned Parenthood. Uh, they... Uh, you know, see marriages only between a man and a woman uh, and say that the Bible says that and so on. Uh, man over nature, you know, all of the stuff about uh, not caring about endangered species yeah, or, so. and all of those things. And you just go down the list. Every part of that list defines the um, cons conservative legislation. This is what Republicans believe. Just take any piece of, the, of Republican legislation, and it's going to fit this list. So what, what about when he said, um, you know, there was a, many Democrats the other night at the State of the Union brought dreamers with them. Yes. One of the more controversial things that uh, Trump said the other night was when he said, quote, Americans are dreamers too. And conservatives loved that when he said that. And some progressives felt it was a sort of a backhanded slap at the dreamers um, what, what was your take? What was what was in that when he was talking about that? What was in that is um, a, a very important thing that had everything to do with his election and with the fact that most Democrats don't understand that conservatives are have strict father morality and that Republican legislation uh, fits this hierarchy. They don't understand it. They miss that. And um, the idea there was that uh, there are lots of union members and uh, you know the white work white people <coughs> in the white working class mm -hmm. who happen to have strict father morality at home who you know believe in that they're the they're they're in charge of their household and so on uh, and then they extend that often to their politics and the assumption that the Democrats made was well if you're in a union you'll vote for us if Thirty to forty percent of union members are Republicans. Exactly, yeah. and there's a reason for it because a lot of working men and union members are strict fathers at home and see that as the natural thing to be. Hmm. Uh, same thing with a lot of uh, working men, and especially white working men will do that. But also women. Uh, Hillary assumed that educated women in the suburbs of Philadelphia would vote for her. They didn't. They were Republicans. Why are they Republicans? Because they have this view of the world. Hmm. Right? What, they, what the Democrats did wrong in that election was they went on demography. That is, they looked at, you know, what was your ethnicity, what jobs do you have, how much do you work, uh, did you go to college, are you mar married or not, you know, all of the, the demography. They never looked at values. Mm. 
They don't have a way of polling. You could poll on these things. We know how to do it. Elizabeth Veiling has uh, figured out how to do such polling and has carried out such polls. But the Democratic pollsters don't know how to poll on this at all. Well, let's talk about uh, the, the, the issue that's going to be consuming us for the next few weeks, and that's immigration. As we know, the, the president's offering this four-point plan. Yeah, he's offering uh, dreamers as a pathway to citizenship, uh, but he would be ending the family unification program, which uh, he calls chain migration, and to the visa lottery program, and he wants $25 billion for the border wall slash border security. How can Democrats win this battle uh, by framing things differently, or how can they? What, what, what's your suggestion? On this? I think you need to know something more about what framing is and isn't. Framing is a matter of changing how people understand this air situation. It is not about slogans. Mm-hmm. Slogans can help if they're, uh, but they depend upon a lot of the frames already being there. Mm. Right? Uh, messaging re- again can introduce frames but they have to be repeated over and over. But moreover, there is um, a etiology of this, the way it develops. Uh, there's a study recently of how terrorists use um, uh, recruiting tools in their, in their messaging. And what they found was the following, that uh, they um, frame first, that is they get their ideas out there first, they repeat them over and over, and then they get somebody to attack them. Why? I wrote a book called Don't Think of an Elephant. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, you take, if you go against something to attack it, in order to neurally um, inhibit the idea, it has to be activated first. And when it's activated, it becomes stronger. So you get someone to attack you, then you're just being helped. And this is very important. Uh, Democrats don't usually understand this. So what they'll do is, is, is if conservatives will say something, what they'll do is give a, repeat what the conservatives say and they'll give a long list of facts and then uh, assume that that's enough and then it'll be dismissed. But every time they give the, the conservative views, they're helping the conservatives. And they don't see that that's what's going on because we don't think in terms of mathematical logic where you negate something and it's gone and ineffective, but the, re- but the reverse. The brain says, you know, uh, if you're going to inhibit something neurally, you have to activate it so it can be inhibited. Mm. You know, and then every time it's activated, it gets stronger. And this is something that uh, you know, a lot of Democrats don't understand. Um, they are for science, but they don't seem to be for neuroscience and cognitive science. Uh, they seem to be denying it, um, and there's a reason for it. They believe in what is called Enlightenment reason. Now, Enlightenment reason was a great thing in 1650 when Descartes came up with it. And it was important for the following reason, that uh, Descartes said, you can think for yourself. You don't have to listen to kings and popes and so on uh, telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. And that's why it was very important in 1650. And um, the idea he had was the following. Uh, He said, I think, therefore I am, that is, he assumed that all thought was conscious. We now know it's 98% unconscious. It's part of your neural system. Uh, He said he was a mathematician. He was the guy who came up with the Cartesian plane, right? Great mathematician. He said, when I think consciously, it's like doing a proof in mathematics. So he assumed that, that thought was like mathematical logic. It's not. You think in terms of the logic of frames, 
which uh, the logic of images, the logic of metaphors, the logic of narratives, and the logic of emotions. Emotions are structured and they have, they have logics. So it's not like the Democrats are going to win by putting forward a great 10-point plan on something. Exactly. What they need to do is the, is the following. They need to recognize that all politics is about morality. If they come out and they say, here's my policy, do what I say, the assumption is that it's right, not wrong. They don't come out and say, this is evil, but do it, or it doesn't matter, but do it. Nobody would ever say that, right? And the point is that that any policy has a moral basis if it's being put forth. And if the conservatives are being putting forth opposite policies, they have an opposite moral basis. That is, they have strict father morality as opposed to nurturant morality. And they have a different view of right and wrong. So how does that play out in the immigration conversation? Well, the immigration congress conversation uh, has to do with, um, notice with the way it was uh, framed there. First of all, the framing had to do with gang members, the MS-13. Mentioned several times. Mentioned yeah, over yeah, yeah, and over. Yeah, yeah. Repetition. Yeah. You introduce a frame that the immigrants, that you know, Mexican or Latin American immigrants, that they that they have gang mem- gang gang. They belong to gangs. Now, what does that do? How does that work cognitively? There's a phenomenon uh, that Danny Kahneman noticed back in the 70s. Uh, that he called salient exemplars, which technically means the following. If there's something that's well-known and well-publicized, like gang members from Mexico, then it is assumed that that fits all members of the category, that all people from Mexico are like that. And Trump uses it all the time, you know, the Mexicans are, ra- if there was a Mexican rapist, then Mexicans are rapists. If there was a, um, uh, a person from, uh, who was uh, Muslim, uh, who uh, was a terrorist, then all Muslims are terrorists, right? That is the way that works. There's a logic to it, and uh, that logic is used by, by Trump all the time. And it was used in the State of the Union address. And let's... Um want to talk about uh, he also talks about eliminating regulations and in, in other words that there and that's a good thing he says that sort of uh, uh, eliminating regulations makes the government more efficient it gets out of your way what how can you flip how do you what's the flip side of that what do democrats say to that well the first thing is that every regulation is there for a reason to protect the public or protect the environment a regulation is there for protection and it's important to know that what if he wants to get rid of three-quarters of the regulations, that means he wants to get rid of three-quarters of the protection of the public and the, and the environment, and that's what he's doing. And what's happened is that the, uh, most of the Democrats have not been noticing that or saying it. In fact, the New York Times ran a front-page story recently where they had somebody talking to business leaders and CEOs about how wonderful it is for business to get rid of, of regulations. But what does that do? It means that if you have a corporation, you can pollute, you can do all sorts of terrible things uh, you know, to, the, to the public or to uh, other people or to your employees. You know, there are regulations to protect people. And you get rid of those. And yes, they can make more money by not protecting either the public or their employees. Now, there is one Democrat who you said you've become a fan of. We were talking about this before we started to hit the podcast play button here today. And that's uh, Joe Kennedy. Now, Joe Kennedy gave the rebuttal the other day. And, and I, I got to say, I'm very dubious about when I heard that he was going to be there. Because I was like, you know, the Democrats are always looking for new voices. 
And as a guy who's, you know, the, the, the third generation politician from a patrician New England family with a third on the end of his name, uh, you know, I, I, and it just didn't seem like a new voice. Um, so, and then he gives it an auto body shop, and you know what? When you, you don't associate the Kennedys with an auto body shop, but but George, you have a, a different take on this. If you yeah, set uh, me straight on this. Okay, uh, to to understand this, you need to understand something about conservative communities. Um, and in a conservative community, uh, there is what I'll call in-group care or in-group nurturance. That is, a progressive community says. We need to have laws that make sure that everybody's cared for. This is a government of, by, and for the people. When you say for the people, it means they're, you're being taken care of. You say we have government resources for everyone. That means it's for uh, education, for health, for all these things. They're resources for people. It means the government is responsible for this because citizens care about other citizens. Right? That is the assumption that progressives have. So there's a notion that about progressive care for people in your community and people in your country. Mm -hmm. If you're in a conservative community, there's something very interesting that happens. You get in-group care. And what does that mean? It means people in your church, people in your military unit, you know, you never leave a brother behind. Mm -hmm. uh, it means that uh, in military bases, you take care of your people. How? You get free room and board. You get um, free education for your family, cheaper prices at the PX, and so on. That is, you take, you take care of people in the military. You have health care through the Veterans Administration, assuming you can get it to work, <laughs> and, uh, and so on. So the, that's the general idea of, uh, of the in-group care there. But in con progressive communities, or in, in conservative communities, you get a version of what you find in progressive communities that they care about people in their churches. They care about people in their in groups. If there's a fire, you'll see the conservatives out there uh, on the fire lines. Uh, if there are flood, they'll be, you know, in, in their communities, they'll be swinging the sandbags. And you saw this in Hurricane Harvey. It was quite a remarkable thing. In Hurricane Harvey, you saw people in boats going out, rescuing anybody, no matter who they were. And the people in those boats were conservatives. They mainly, they're the people who had the boats in Houston. Mm -hmm. And they didn't care because what had happened was in the flood, all of Houston became their in-group. Houston was their community, and it didn't matter who they were, they were going to rescue them, mm. right? So the idea, this what this says is, first of all, the in-group can expand. Disasters are among the places where in-groups expand. And all of those places are have to do with disasters, right? And that's important. Uh, but in fact, they, it does expand, and conservatives do care about people in their in-groups. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a friend who moved from L.A. to uh, a uh, conservative community north of L.A., and uh, you know he would write letters in the paper about politics, and the conservatives would write back about how awful he was and so on. But his neighbors were really great to him. Everybody in the town, you know, was very nice to him and so on. And he called me up. He said, what's going on? You know, I thought all these people were mean. And uh, I said, no, they're not. You have, you have joined their community. You're, you're in now part of their in-group. They're going to be nice to you. And this is an important thing. When you talk about it in their in-group, there are certain things you don't say and certain things you do say. If you're a Democrat, you tend to be talking about 
programs and policies and uh, the government and what the government can do and so on. But if you're talking about people in your church, you don't do that. You talk about the individuals and so on. You say, is there anybody in your church who is sick? Anybody who has cancer or diabetes, you know, and don't have health care? You know, how do you feel about them? Uh, Is there anybody who's down on his luck, who is out of work? Do you try to get him a job? What do you do? Uh, all sorts of people in the church, if they if they're losing their home, they will go and build a guy a house. Right? So what you liked about Joe Kennedy is that he didn't get bogged down. He, there was no policy in this in his speech. He was very empathetic in this way. Well, more than that, Joe Joe Kennedy was empathetic not in using the word empathy. I mean. <laughs> Obama used the word empathy and talked about empathy, and the most important thing his mother taught him. And you know, if you don't have empathy, teach your children empathy. We'll have a generation of people who don't care about each other. Mm. He talked about empathy, talking about the idea. Yeah. Joe Kennedy never did that. Joe Kennedy showed empathy, and mm. how did he do it? He did it in his voice, in his face, in his body language, and his gestures, and in his passion. He showed it, and then everything he said was about empathy, mm. but about it at the personal level, where it applied both to conservative in-group care and to democratic care on the national level. He said his, the, the, uh, the money line there was, we can do both. We can take care of both. We don't have to choose between the, the mother in Mississippi and the, and the father in uh, Nebraska. I'm, I'm blowing the lines here. But he, but he said we, the Democrats can basically take care of everybody in a, in a nation that's wealthy. That's what we should be doing. That's, what, that's right, because very often you get Republicans offering things that will cut benefits for people in the blue states or cut you know, uh, social benefits and so on, mm-hmm. but benefit people in the Midwest or people uh, you know, who have businesses of certain kinds and so on. You know, or people who are just rich and, and uh, you know, have flourishing businesses. He said, we should have flourishing businesses. You know, here you are in Fall River, you know, and you've got these businesses that are great and they're flourishing, right? We should have both. And you can have both because he was talking not at the level of policy, but at the level of, of empathy and care mm-hmm. for individuals. And he did an amazing job, I mean, all through uh, from the first line. We're here in Fall River, Massachusetts, a proud American city built by immigrants. Now, these weren't Mexican immigrants who just came over. These were people whose ancestors were immigrants. He said built in the past. Mm. And what he said was, he, he framed it beautifully. He said, if you're here and you're not a Native American, you, you, your family is a family of immigrants. Making us all, it's more inclusive. It makes us, it, it reminds us that we all are immigrants. It reminds us that, but it also says, it says you have should have empathy with the re- most recent immigrants. Mm. That's what that's about. In this one line, boom, he, he has that coming up beautifully right away. And he does this line after line after line. Sentences, you know, um, you know, from textiles to robots, this is a place that knows how to make great things. The textiles were back in the past when the other immigrants came and so on worked in the textile mills. Now we have robots, okay, mm-hmm. uh, who are taking jobs away, but we also build robots, you know, and we, have a, and we have flourishing businesses that have them and so on. 
and uh, you know, and he says these the students with us this evening in the auto shop at uh, uh, Dimen Regional Technical School carry on that rich legacy. He wasn't talking about rich people at Harvard, which is where his family comes from. Mm-hmm. He's talking about people who are learning to do technical stuff in a technical school and work in an auto shop. And he says people working in an auto shop are fine. They're good people. They're hardworking people. And uh, <coughs> very often, they may be people with conservative values, but it doesn't matter. They care about each other. They work hard. They're good folks. And that's exactly what he was doing in case after case after case. Interesting. So, and, and so I, I need to get over my, my, the optics of Joe Kennedy, just like progressives need to get over their, their sort of uh, visceral reaction to Trump sometimes. I've been covering a lot of uh, gubernatorial debates here in California lately, and one of the candidates uh, refers to the president as an orange-haired misogynist racist. Yeah. Okay, so... You have pointed out that the Trump wants this almost in some way. He yeah. wants to the focus to be on his tweets. You say they they often frame the day, if you will, and you said that there's four different ways that Trump's tweets frame that he uses to frame things. Walk us through that, and and when why why we should ignore those things? Yeah, uh, the Democrats seem to think that the, the, the tr- that these are crazy things that they're emotional and so on. But they're actually strategic because he's a master salesman. He knows how to sell. And the tweets have four strategies. And what's interesting is they're basically the same kind of strategies that are used by terrorists in recruiting. You know, the first one is frame first. You know, that is uh, uh, get your framing out there before anyone else can. That's what they're doing with this Republican memo. Get yes. it out there for the a Nunez week. memo. Yes. The Nunez memo. Get it out there for a week before the Democrats get a chance to get their memo out. You mm-hmm. know, frame first, and repeat and repeat and repeat. Trump repeats constantly, over and over. He's repeating that framing. Okay? <coughs> so first, that. The second is diversion. You know, that is, if he if he's coming under attack for the Russia inquiry or for anything else, you know. What he does is he attacks Meryl Streep or he attacks football players who take a knee or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. That is anything to divert attention from the, the thing that is threatening him, okay? The next one is blame someone else. Either blame the media, blame the, the, the messenger, or um, give them, put the blame on the Democrats for, uh, you know, for this or for that, for shutting down the government. Blame someone else. So that's the third thing, you know, that is deflect blame. And the fourth is what I'll call trial balloons. If you have something outrageous to say, say it. Because, and then see what the reaction is. And if the reaction isn't too bad, you're free to do anything you want. You know, you know we're gonna you know, uh, destroy North Korea. We're gonna have more nuclear weapons, etc. See what the reaction is. If the reaction is, you know, a little bit of, uh, of stuff on MSNBC, then he can do free to do anything he wants. <laughs> so, but what's isn't the role of the media to? I mean, this is the leader of the free world saying something directly to the world. Shouldn't the, the media can't just ignore this? You have to, to take it and put it in context. What's what's the balancing act there? Well, uh, I was asked this by um, uh, you know uh, the show on the media, Brooke mm-hmm. Gladstone, terrific show, 
And it, don't be plug, plugging other podcasts here, George. Come on, come on. <laughs> come on. Sorry, he's just good. I, okay. I, I've actually been on that show. That's okay. a, it's a good show. And uh, you know, she asked me the very that question, and I said, "Look, uh, the media. He's what he's he's doing is manipulating the media by getting the media to repeat what he says and re- repeat his tweets, and even if it's diverting attention or deflecting right. the blame or whatever it is, your job in the media is to tell the truth." Well, what is a truth? It's not just saying a fact, right? Truth has a structure. It has truth. Important truths have histories. They they're complex. They have a, they are part of a political system, an economic system. There's a complexity to them. If they're important, what makes them important is their moral values. That is, there's a framing of it of the truth that links up to a theory of morality, and then they have moral consequences if they're important. So the job of telling the truth is all of that, which just takes a while to say. So if there's a truth that he's trying to hide, that he's trying to de- de- you know to get away from, your job is to tell the most important truth at that time, and to go into it in great detail. Now, if he has tweeted something that would divert attention or contradict it or something, you can you get on and you can spend ten seconds on his tweet. And you can say, well, he said something false, as you can see, that doesn't fit this truth. Uh, it, is, it wasn't true. Here's what he said. You give the statement. But what he's trying to hide is this, and then you go back to the truth, right? 10, 15 seconds, you've reported on him, you've said what he said, but you haven't given over the truth to him. Mm, okay. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to respond to something. You've been in the news lately, and I want to give you a, ch- a chance to respond to something if you'd like to. Um, the uh, uh, <laughs> I will, just because you're in the news, I want to give you a chance to respond. Um, a guy named Arakli Kevrilatsi, one of the uh, attendees of that uh, infamous Trump Tower meeting in June 2016, between uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Kremlin-backed uh, uh, lawyers, is suing you for libel, and the suit says you uh, refer to him as uh, a person who's involved with uh, money laundering and such. And um, and he said this is baseless. And I want to see if you do you want to respond to that at all or in any way. Uh, first, uh, I want to uh, have my lawyer respond to it. Uh, that's Travis LeBlanc, uh, LeBlanc at uh, the Boys Law Firm, and uh, you know that's that. Okay. And in addition to that, uh, I refer to the Washington Post story, and that's it. Okay. I want to give, give you a chance to do that. One more thing, and this is, goes back to, we've, we've kind of referred to this a couple of times, but with the, with the tax breaks that, that are coming, um, why some of these are going to hurt the people who support Trump. Why do they continue to support him? Even though these, this financially may benefit other people in society? There's a very simple answer to that um, that Democrats usually don't get, but anyway, it's a very simple answer. Uh, If they have strict father morality, uh, then um, that is part of who they are. Your moral system is is who you are. Uh, You always want to think of yourself as doing right or trying to do right. And so your identity is bound up with your moral system. Now, uh, under Obama, people who had strict father morality felt oppressed. 
they felt that they were the true Americans and that America was not recognizing them and was not was going against what they believe. Now with Trump, they feel you know that they have uh, finally got someone who recognizes them and who uh, fits what they believe and 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 respects their identity. Their identity is more important to them than material things, and that's why. Really? You know, he can take away their health care. He can, you know, uh, you know, increase their taxes or whatever. Uh, but that's not the crucial thing. The crucial thing is this is who they are as people most deeply. And he supports that. And so that reaffirms them. Yes. So that's, and then so when he says, when Trump says, I could go in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and no one in my base would be with me, that's kind of right? Well, that may be a bit extreme, but it could be right. I mean, if they, you know, it might or might not be right. That's yes. an extreme. Yes, case. extreme case. But I mean, the, 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 meta- the metaphor, if you will, he, holds. Well, but what he what he's doing is using what he's he uses extreme cases, in in what he he calls a, a truth by saying something extreme at the end of this, this thing. Right, right. But even though that's the extreme case, the point is, at less extreme cases, it's true. Okay, George, thank you so much for taking time. It's always good to talk. It's an it's an education. I think I might have to play this twice to just to, for, to let it all soak in to me. This is a it's a lot of stuff here, and and uh, but very interesting. Thanks for asking me, Joe. Okay. I'd like to thank Professor George Lakoff for being on today's It's All Political, and I'd like to thank Fernando Diaz for, for producing this episode. And as George Lakoff can tell you, no matter if you're breaking down metaphors or building up messaging frames, you know it's all political.